I'm your host, Char Adams, and this is COVID University, New York. Risk for severe illness from COVID-19 increases with age. The older you are, the more you may require hospitalization, intensive care, or a ventilator to help you breathe. The illness could even lead to death. In short, the elderly population is especially vulnerable during this health crisis. For those with pre-existing health conditions like lung disease, heart disease, or cancer, consequences are even more dire. With that, the virus has been ravaging nursing homes and long-term care facilities across the country. Earlier this year, Governor Andrew Cuomo issued a directive to order nursing homes in the state to accept coronavirus patients from hospitals. More than 6,400 residents have died since, and more than 41% of the country's pandemic fatalities can be attributed to COVID-19 deaths in these facilities. Medical professionals and trained caregivers have stepped up to stem the tide of COVID-19 infections in nursing homes and to care for those infected. Kristen Rodriguez and Adam Kern, two Queensboro Community College nursing students, have volunteered at the Parker Jewish Institute for Healthcare and Rehabilitation in Queens for months. There, they make sure residents are clean, ensure they get adequate medical treatment, and even comfort them in their final moments. Meanwhile, sons, daughters, siblings, and other relatives have taken on caretaker roles for elderly loved ones living at home, putting themselves at risk of becoming infected. Although the pandemic has seemed to improve in New York in recent months, there's still work to be done. And in order to continue this progress, vulnerable communities like the elderly population should be a top priority. My name is Adam Kern. I am a second year student in the nursing program in CUNY. And I was contacted by them at the onset of the COVID outbreak. And they had offered volunteer positions around mid-April or early April. And I took that at Parker Jewish Institute, which is right on the Queens-Nassau border. I signed up for a volunteer, but then was offered a job as a student nurse a day later. And that's what I've been doing since. There are many different people in many different states, mentally and physically. We have a bunch of patients that are in their mid or early 60s. But I work, I work on a floor with dementia patients. So it can range from usually around there to we have one on my floor, different part of the floor, but she is 109 years old. And somebody that I get along with very well, who has all of her mental faculties, is 100 years old. So we have a few, you know, uh, very, very old people. (laughs) But um, I'd say average is around 70, 75, somewhere in there. Some have missing limbs. Some have diabetes. Some have, uh, you know, all manner of things. So it keeps me on my toes. When I first got there, it was in the very middle of the worst part of the COVID epidemic. My name's Kristen Rodriguez. I'm a nursing student at Queensboro. I'm in my third semester. We'll be graduating in May, 2021. I've been, just like Adam, I've been working at Parker since, it had to be early, mid-April. When we first got there, it was 
horrible. It was like a war zone. Everybody had COVID. Almost the whole, actually, all the floors had COVID patients. Well, at first, you know, when this whole COVID started, we were told by the media and the government that it really just targeted elderly and immunocompromised. But at the point we were contacted for this job, we already knew it kind of didn't discriminate. It just would attack anybody. You know, there was no rhyme or reason who got it. We started seeing people in their 20s, 30s, you know, non-immunocompromised, healthy people. So, you know, everyone in my family was very scared and skeptical. I was too, but a part of me, you know, just felt like as a nurse, I can't pick and choose my patients. So if I decided not to help COVID patients, then that would just be wrong of me from a nursing perspective. You know, before I did make my final decision, I did want to make sure that Parker had proper PPE because on the news you hear that they were, you know, a lot of hospitals were running out of masks, ventilators, and things like that. There was a shortage. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't walking into somewhere that wouldn't protect myself. So they did. They had proper PP. They still do. And I did finally make my decision, but I did consult with my family first, and they supported me. When I do come home from work, I live on the second floor of an apartment. So in my hallway, I keep a bag. <laughs> And that's where all my scrubs go. They don't ever come into the house. I don't have a washer and dryer, so I have to go to a laundromat. So it never sees the house. Everything goes in there down to the sock. And I run right into the shower. I lice all the doorknobs. I just try to keep all my work stuff, my, my shield, my face shield, any masks or anything that all stays in my trunk, in my car, in a box. Work sneakers too. I lice all them after, but I keep them in my trunk and when I get to my house actually when I leave work I put on my flip-flops in the car and then I put the shoes in a bag so everything kind of stays contained and I just let my son know how important it is to stay clean and stay safe I'm kind of a nag but you know it's just the mother in me I guess I was happy to be out of the house to be perfectly frank I was uh quite quite bored and uh itching to do something, anything. So we're very social creatures. And I had missed dealing with other people, if not hugging them, at least being in close proximity. And so for me, I, this is why I'm in nursing school. I could handle it. Uh, in fact, instead of overwhelming me, I found it was able to focus my brain and my soul a little bit better, uh, give me some purpose and um, to be a help to those people who not in an enviable spot. I mean, basically stuck. And so whatever small things I could do to help them made me feel better in the end. I know it helped them, but it made me feel better. And that's, everybody could use some of that in this day and age, for sure. We'll be right back after these messages. If you're a fan of this show, you might also want to check out our sister series, The Big Shut-In. Long-form conversations with all kinds of people, real people, all around the country, to find out the variety of what they're dealing with and how they're coping during the coronavirus crisis. It's unscripted and intimate, and really gives you a view into people's lives as they navigate a truly difficult time. You can find The Big Shut-In at racecarradio.com and wherever you get podcasts. 
So the residents, they were really contained to the rooms. They were not allowed to be in like the common areas. It was just very sad. You know, you feel it. Like, you know, imagine being stuck in your room for how, how long? Two, three months, maybe? I mean, we were stuck in our house, but we can walk around. We could even get fresh air outside. A lot of these residents never even saw daylight unless it was through their window. You know, that's... I can't even imagine. That's depressing, you know. But what other choice did you have? So, unfortunately, a lot of people lost their lives. And, you know, I mean, we're very lucky we didn't, knock on wood, we didn't contract anything because it was everywhere. All day. For eight hours we were around it. So, I think the biggest impact besides them getting sick and having any illnesses or even death, I think the biggest impact is them not being able to see their family which has, you know, that takes a big toll on you. You know, that, that can make someone deteriorate very quickly. So, you know, your social health and, and well-being is just as important as your physical health, you know, mental health, everything all stems together. So I, I think the fact that they can't see their grandchildren, you know, kids make you feel lively. So when you're elderly, you know, sometimes you need that. It keeps you going. I know my parents, they... When my son's there, it's like they get up and they go. And I'm like, all of a sudden they perk up, you know. So I think that really took a toll on them. And, you know, me and Adam being there and a couple other students in Queensboro and some other schools, you know, we're more lively. Like we try to just cheer them up and laugh with them or paint their nails, like brush their hair. Just something as simple as that really makes a difference for them. You know, and doctors usually prescribe medications, but, you know, there's better ways to handle things sometimes. Just need a friend to talk to or someone to vent to or, you know, and I think mental health and things like that is overlooked. I'm not painting anybody's nails, nor would I know how to, but, but I do things like read books and I pay as much attention to them as possible. And I'm afforded to do that in my very strange position of student nurse. Our position's kind of in between. We're between a, a CNA, which is a certified nursing assistant, and the RN, which is the registered nurse. So, but I do vital signs, blood sugar. I watch the nurses do wound care. I help the CNAs too with feeding the patients or changing the patients, cleaning the patients, and talking to them. Uh, activities, you know, little things. Like, what I watered a lady's plant yesterday and she was so happy. When somebody's close to death, and there are medical ways to determine this pretty, you know, fairly obviously, uh, I just go into a zone of helping them as much as possible, making everything as comfortable as humanly possible making sure the lights are on, making sure whatever music they like is on, talking to them, uh, holding hand, that kind of thing, comfort, touch, that sort of thing. Just extension of what I would hope for myself or for anybody else that I love. At first it was mentally, it was very hard because there were a lot of people sick. It was just really sad to watch and you know, it has gotten a lot better, though. I will say that. It has gotten a lot better. There's eight floors. I believe there, yeah, there's eight floors, and it's only contained now to one floor, COVID. So it's only on one floor. All the other floors are COVID-free, but we still treat it as if it's COVID because 
you know, you still have to wear your goggles, you still have to wear your mask, your gloves, but it's definitely gotten a lot better and it's a lot less chaotic. I think New York, just like many other places, got a lot wrong in the beginning. Governor Cuomo sending COVID patients into nursing homes and long-term care facilities was definitely a mistake. If he's honest with himself, he knows that that's a mistake. But not playing politics, I mean, it's just a mistake. I think he's learned from his mistake, as we should hope public servants do. I think they should apologize to them, especially the residents in the nursing home. You know, what can you do? You can't take back what's done. And like Adam said, mistakes happen. I get it. You know, we all make them. But, you know, maybe offer them some type of compensation. I mean, it really doesn't make up for what's lost, but, you know, maybe home services for them where they can have COVID testing rather than waiting on long lines at like, like a city MD. I mean, these people are elderly. They're going to wait in the scorching heat for hours just to get a COVID test. You know, maybe they can provide, you know, free home testing or even like free home delivery for meals, you know, something. Just so they don't have to leave the house because A, it's so hot out and B, COVID is still around. A lot of these people don't even have access to masks. You know, they don't, some of them don't have internet. Maybe they don't know how to order on Amazon, something we take for granted every day, you know, a lot of them don't have family to do it for them. So, you know, I think maybe they can start there, but definitely an apology and some type of compensation. But for all the families that lost loved ones, there's really no way to compensate. I, I would say from terrible mistakes, also we got massive infection rates coming in from Europe. Of course, New York is very cosmopolitan and has a massive influx of people from around the world, which is not a, the best of traits during a global pandemic. So we had a rough start and made many mistakes. But I think so far as it goes, New York State's rate of infection is below 1% now, currently. And that's uh, amazing progress, frankly. And not only the elderly, I, I find that uh, most people in New York, wherever I've been, have been pretty good about masks and distance. And even when I go on walks, one of us is walking off the sidewalk when the other one passes. I mean, I, I don't care. I've walked into more yards than I can count at this point, you know, but nobody cares. Everybody gets it. And it, things are different. And I think New York, honestly, should be replicated in the other states that are currently dealing with outbreaks. My name is Shar Adams, and this is COVID University, New York. It was produced by David Hoffman, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, executive producer Peter Christian Eigner. This is a co-production of the Gotham Center for New York City History and Race Car Radio. Initial funding for this series was generously provided by the Seed Time Fund and Lauren Kramer. If you have feedback for us, you can reach us through our Facebook page or email us at coviduniversity at racecarradio.com. If you like the show, please subscribe now and never miss an episode. Just go to racecarradio.com or find us on any of your favorite podcast apps.